On the 1st of May, 1889, the young, 33-year-old psychoanalyst on the make, Sigismund Schlomor Freud, took on the case of, quote, a lady of about 40 years of age, a Frau Emmy von N., who we now know to be the Swiss noblewoman, Baroness Fanny Louise von Sulzewart. Baroness Fanny had married 29 years previously at the tender age of 23, the 65-year-old Swiss watchmaker and industrialist Heinrich Moser, who died four years after the marriage from a heart attack. In the minds of Moses' five children from his previous marriage, the idea got around that Fanny might have toe-tagged their father after having him sire her two new Moser offspring with birthright claims to his vast fortune. This is the first time that Freud decides to give his friend, Josef Breuer's technique of investigation under hypnosis, a tryout as he attempts to help his new patient with her suffering somatizations, which resemble very much the symptoms of fibromyalgia as we know it today. Freud starts using techniques which will in time become, after he has ditched the overt hypnosis angle, his own special contribution to human-animal therapeutics. Were we to travel back in time and watch or record Siggy and Fanny's interactions over the three-week period in which he devoted on a daily basis a great deal of his time to her, determined, he writes, to, quote, do all I could for her recovery, if we were to spend time with him, we might refer to these interactions as one of the first modern examples of what we now know as the talking cure or just simply therapy, as we like to call our preeminent secular religion, a psychological technology or treatment which can be found a century later in 101 exciting flavors, including the original or classic psychoanalysis as it was then, or at least as it was beginning to be. All of it, every single flavor that now contributes to this worldwide billion-dollar industry, harks back to that original recipe concocted by Freud and Breuer in the late 19th century and written up in their co-authored book, Studies in Hysteria. Freud finds Fanny, on their first meeting, quote, lying on a sofa with her head resting on a leather bolster, he takes a moment to register her from the vantage point of what we, we now might call the male gaze. She still looks young, he tells us, and has finely cut features, full of character. Her face, he writes, bears a tense, pained expression. Her eyes are screwed up and cast down. She has a heavy frown and deep nasolabial folds. She speaks as if it were arduous in a quiet voice that is occasionally interrupted to the point of stuttering by spastic breaks in her speech. When she speaks, she keeps her fingers, which exhibit a ceaseless agitation resembling athetosis, tightly interlaced. Numerous tick-like twitches in her face and neck muscles, some of which, in particular the right sternocladoimastoid, protrude quite prominently. In addition, she frequently interrupts herself in order to produce a peculiar clicking noise, which I am unable to reproduce. So as to help his readers, Freud provides a footnote on the clacking or clicking sound, telling us of colleagues with 
quote, sporting experience who have informed him, having heard it, that it somewhat resembles the mating cry of the capercaillie. Scotland. The capercaillie is the biggest of grouse. Hunting for this call online, I find a youngish David Attenborough being chased around a highland pine forest by a fierce-looking male capercaillie wearing red eyeliner, its mating cry eliciting, from my memory, the sound of those last few drops of a fizzy drink slurped out of a can by a late 20th century human child through a plastic straw. He is so charged up, this being the breeding season, that he will display to almost anything, including me. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Oh. It also reminds me of John Burnside's poem, First Footnote on Zoomorphism, which has these lines of anthropomorphic longing in it. Yet now and then I'm on the point of hearing bitterns at the far edge of the lake that cry across the marshes like the doom you only get in books where people die so readily for love. Each heart becomes a species in itself, the sound it makes distinctive. One more descant in the dark before it disappears into the marshes. Freud and Breuer's novel take on hysteria would, of course, and perhaps for the first time, factor these movements of the heart into the suffering animals they treated, with their quasi-poetic linguistic flourish, with their quasi-poetic with their quasi-poetic linguistic flourish, with their quasi-poetic linguistic flurries and strange somatizations. which also makes this the origin story for psychological therapy, as we now understand the talking cure to imply. Rather than just standing to one side, like medical doctors do, and observing the symptoms so as to make a diagnosis of perceived dysfunctionality or illness, the doctor now begins to listen to the patient in the belief that they may be able to assist both the clinician and themselves in understanding what lies at the heart of their suffering. Freud perhaps implicitly or even explicitly understood that the new kid on the block, science, and all our scientific explanations are ultimately also mythological ones when you start to examine them in the realm of conversation. Reading through the case study, we find that Freud's main task in helping this beleaguered young woman is to give her lots of massages, some of which this was common at the time, would have involved stimulating the genital region until, well, until the patient felt better. Let us not forget that the vibrator, which is nowadays sold in sex shops, was first and foremost a medical tool called a percuteur, invented by the British physician Joseph Mortimer Granville in the 1880s in order to help physicians carry out their increasingly sought-after pelvic massage procedures without having to go through that tiresome manual operation requiring the physician's fingers to stroke, rub and chafe against parts of the pelvic zone until the sought-after release was accomplished. 
After carrying out these manipulations, Freud would put Fanny Moser into a trance-like state, perhaps assisted by the after-effects of her orgasm, so as to implant, through various suggestions, ways for her to be more skillful or functional, according to the requirements of the day, in her relationships and domestic affairs. While she was languishing on the couch, he would also encourage her to talk about past traumas in order to process or work through this material so that the so-called hysterical push and pull of her nervous system might settle down and find some peace. In the Strachey translation of Freud's text in the German, when discussing his ideas about the non-biological provenance of Fanny Moses' hysterical symptoms, we find one of the first uses of the word ego in the Freud canon. Freud is explaining in the text how the hysterical conversion of neurotic energy into somatic innovation, this is the fibromyalgia stuff, tiredness, bodily pain, and loss of perceived strength in arms and legs, were all part of the process whereby, quote, the ego tries to repress troubling emotions such as anger or guilt, often triggered by painful reminiscences. And in so doing, Freud tells us, puts up defensive measures, which according to Sigmund, might be viewed as acts of moral cowardice towards the psyche's suffering, a sort of shutting down on one's own suffering self. Which is why I guess that almost cliched question, well, how does that make you feel, which you're probably going to hear um, from your psychotherapist many, many times, is a way for the clinician to access this suffering that is often repressed and dissociated from. Freud never used the word ego in any of his writings, even though we attribute this word to him. The word is used thousands of times, though, in our English translations of Freud, but the term that Freud himself came up with to describe our conscious or semi-conscious awareness of, well, ourselves, was... Ich, I. This was set against the expression he used to describe the unconscious realm from which all our painful emotions and thoughts mysteriously emerge, which with equal simplicity Freud called S, it. This is also the title of his 1923 book Das Ich und Das S, which in English has the title of The Ego and the Id. The psychological processes Freud discusses are personal and internal, writes Bruno Bettelheim in The Soul of Freud. The translation of these personal pronouns into their Latin equivalents, the ego and the id, rather than their English ones, turns them into cold technical terms which arouse no personal associations. In German, of course, the pronouns are invested with deep emotional significance, for the reader has used them all their lives. Freud's careful and original choice of words would have facilitated this intuitive understanding of his meaning, for no word has greater and more intimate connotations than the pronoun I, the pronoun ich. It is one of the most frequently used words in spoken language, and more important, it is... Bettelheim reminds us, the most personal word we have. To mistranslate ich 
as ego, Bettelheim warns us, is to transform it into a jargon that no longer conveys the personal commitment we make when we say I or me, not to mention our subconscious memories of the deep emotional experiences we have had when in infancy we discovered a self in the process of learning to say that I, in the process of learning to refer to ourselves as an I. I am hungry. I am thirsty. I want this. I don't want that. I love you. I hate you, etc. Bettelheim fears that what has occurred here in this translation, the Strachey translation of the word ich into ego, is the creation of a concept that leaves lived reality behind us in favor of the metaphysical and the conceptual. The reality of ich, of I, this simple presence-filled container of impressions, thoughts and feelings, Freud made sure to tie down in a language that would convey our ongoing embodied experience by using a term that made it practically impossible to leave our own lived reality behind. Ich, ich, ich. Reading or speaking about the I forces one to look at oneself introspectively, to really become aware of seeing the world through two subjective eyes, forming one self, which we know as the I, a somewhat cohesive psychic entity around those disparate thoughts, feelings and narratives present in consciousness. The I, the Ich, denotes a unitary self designated by a single capital letter which also stands for the first numeral in our counting system. I am. I am a unit of self. I am this one. Perhaps we could extend Bettelheim's critique to how we all now view and use psychotherapy as a kind of one-stop ego repair shop, a place where everyone is told to go for all their major ego workouts. Our life MOT tests, our resilience checks, air conditioning, aka emotional regulation, repairs for traumatic wounding, wheel alignment, steering, suspension, clutches, anxiety brakes, engine management, and all the rest. And yet, even a century's worth of navel-gazing after Freud, the profound mystery of us well, just having this I, you know, this conscious self, and the way this self, this ego, if you want to still call it that, is set up to help us and hinder us in the management of everything that we perceive to be inside us, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, hasn't really been clarified much in the last hundred years in any significant way. Or maybe even in the last thousand years, two thousand years, did Plato and Aristotle really have less of an understanding about their egos, their conscious experiential points of I-ness than Freud did, than we do? Very unlikely. The ego, this I speaking to your you, your ego, is anarchically heterogeneous. Thoughts, feelings and reactions, as well as the suppression of behaviours originating from these thoughts, feelings and reactions, all play their part. We're all now au fait with the notion of an I, an ego, being caught somewhat piggy in the middle between the demands of a pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding it or id, the inner Homer Simpson as I like to think of it, and the cultural or familial superego reflecting back to us or demanding we take action to manifest 
our idealized selves or to manifest some kind of idealized action. Hey, Homer, slow down. You're gonna choke us up. Don't tell me how do we do it. These selves and actions are often formulated through a moral and ethical language. You must, you should, you have to, you ought to, which creates a kind of clash or opposition with the inner Homer Simpson that the ego, the I, caught in the middle, has to sort out in some way. But would reading the complete works of Sigmund Freud, Skinner, Rogers, Erickson, Maslow, Beck, Adler, Bowlby, and all the rest reveal to us any more about these archetypal inner entities than we already know just from the experience, our own experience, of having them, of living them, of living with them? Which is why I'm going to suggest for this episode that Rainer Maria Rilke, rather than Freud, perhaps understood as much as we need to know about his ego as the contemporary Sigismund Schlomo Freud did at the time and even now. And maybe, as you will see, they both arrived at their understanding of what or who the ego is, the I, the you, the they, what this is, what I am, by engaging in an empathic form of inquiry. Rilke, with a non-human animal in a cage, a panther, who he would cage or uncage, depending on your reading of it, into a poem, and Freud with his patients, sitting behind them, smoking his cigars, and observing, as they lay, spread out on the couch before him, the ways in which the ego, the I, leads us all on a merry little dance, which is to say also a somewhat suffering merry little dance of self. Thank you.